Welcome to a new episode of Mediterranean Sustainability Partners. I'm your host, Ellen Wasalina. In this episode, I am so privileged to be joined once again by Lieutenant General Retired Ben Hodges. And the title of this new episode is The Fall of Afghanistan, What Went Wrong? And I'd just like to quote Henry Kissinger, who wrote recently in The Economist on August 25th. It was not possible to turn the country into a modern democracy, but creative diplomacy and force might have overcome terrorism. So in the first segment, uh, I would like to be talking about military, security, US, NATO, and allies, failures, lack of unity, or purpose in this mission. In segment two, who will fill the void after August 31st? Turkey, Russia, China, Iran, or the GCC? Segment three, what are the threats? And is democracy a mirage? I do hope you'll enjoy this new episode on Mediterranean Sustainability Partners. This time we'll be having a discussion with Lieutenant General Retired Ben Hodges, who holds the Pershing Chair in Strategic Studies at the Center of European Policy Analysis. He joined SEPA in February 2018. A native of Quincy, Florida, General Hodges graduated from the United States Military Academy in May 1980 and was commissioned in the infantry. After his first assignment as an infantry lieutenant at Karlstadt, Germany, he commanded infantry units at the company, battalion, and brigade levels in the 101st Airborne Division, including command of the 1st Brigade Combat Team Bastogne of the 101st Airborne Division in Operation Iraqi Freedom, 2003-2004. His other operational assignments include Chief of Operations for Multinational Corps Iraq in Operation Iraqi Freedom, 2005-2006, and Director of Operations, Regional Command, South in Kandahar, Afghanistan, 2009 to 2010. General Hodges also served in a variety of joint and army staff positions to include Tactics Instructor, Chief of Plans, 2nd Entry Division in Korea, Aide de Camp to the Supreme Allied Commander Europe, Chief of Staff, 18th Airborne Corps, Director of the Pakistan-Afghanistan Coordination Cell on the Joint Chief, Joint Staff, Chief of Legislative Liaison for the United States Army, and Commander, NATO Allied Land Khmer in Ismail, Turkey. His last military assignment was Commanding General, United States Army Europe, Wiesbaden, Germany, from 2014 to 2017. He retired from the U.S. Army in January 2018. Welcome to a new episode of Mediterranean Sustainability Partners. I am so pleased and privileged to have 
Join me once again. I believe this is our third podcast together. Lieutenant General Retired Ben Hodges. Ben, good morning. Ellen, thank you and good morning. Uh, it's so wonderful to be with you again. I hope you had a pleasant summer. Uh, it was a great summer, uh, a little bit of hectic travel across the United States, uh, but it was productive and stressful all at the same time. <laughs> <laughs> the good kind of stress, right? <laughs> yeah, sure. Absolutely. All right. So today uh, we're going to discuss uh, this very important topic that everybody's talking about. And, and I'm so glad, you know, you were available to talk to us after the Americans had pulled out on the 31st of August uh, from Afghanistan. So the title of this podcast is The Fall of Afghanistan, What Went Wrong? Now, uh, Ben, I'd like to open up with a couple of quotes, one with uh, from Henry Kissinger that I'd like to do first, and then I'd like to cite some of your uh, excellent quotes from your, your uh, article, uh, which I will reference as follows. So, it was not possible to turn the country into a modern democracy, but creative diplomacy and force might have overcome terrorism, says the American statesman Henry Kissinger and The Economist, August 25, 2021. Now, Ben, I'd like to, for this first segment, in fact, I should lay out the program for our audience listening in 38 countries and on four continents. Uh, I will be quoting uh, from your article that you contributed to the New York Post uh, on the 24th of August, 2021. And segment one will be about military, security, U.S., NATO allies, failures or lack of unity and purpose in the mission, segment one. Then we'll move on to segment two, who will fill the void after August 31st. I think we're seeing some players step in, uh, Turkey, Russia, China, Iran, GCC countries. And finally, segment three, what are the threats and is democracy in mirage? Um, so let's start with segment one, Ben, and I'd like to read a quote from your article. I've been giving a lot of thought to what went wrong in Afghanistan, where we failed as a nation and where I made mistakes as an officer. Number one was going to Iraq. Like many, I backed that invasion, but in retrospect, it distracted our forces for a war that had nothing to do with 9-11. We should have stayed focused on Afghanistan. In Afghanistan, meanwhile, one of our biggest mistakes was with the Afghan army, and I was part of the problem. Ben, please explain that. Well, um, the first of all, Sec Secretary Kissinger's uh, remark or comment about democracy and, and terrorism, of course, he's right. And that was not our original purpose for going to Afghanistan. It was not to establish democracy there, but it was to uh, destroy Al-Qaeda and make sure that the Taliban could not host Islamic extremists for future attacks on the United States or on any of our European allies. Uh, it was not to establish democracy there. Um, but we got distracted from that original purpose, um, both by this uh, uh, invasion of Iraq um, but also, uh, after we had just about accomplished what we set out to do in Afghanistan, we stayed and began this process of, of uh, all good things, by the way, um, in, improved education and, and rights for women, uh, improved infrastructure. Nobody denies any of that. But, but that sure. was not the purpose for going. And, and uh, I think that was a, a critical strategic error. Or the president of the United States has to explain 
uh, uh, and get support from the Congress has to explain why this helps us and doing it with allies. As far as the military goes, look, I, I met many outstanding uh, Afghan officers. I saw soldiers in combat there. I, they were effective. The problem that um, we made, that we had, was that the Afghan security forces were built using a Western model, like the United States, the British Army, the French Army, the German mm -hmm. Army. Uh, and that model depends on overwhelming superior firepower, air support, endless logistics, and exquisite intelligence. So when those things were removed, then the model of Afghan security forces, regardless of their courage, obviously collapsed. Um, the most effective Afghan unit I saw was one that looked a whole lot like Taliban. Um, they were locals, tribe, uh, didn't wear helmets or boots. Uh, they moved around in pickup trucks, but they had a U.S. Army Green Beret Lieutenant Colonel that was the link between them and us. And he was the one that helped organize their effort. And, and that sort of organization is so much more in harmony with Afghan culture. So when I say I was part of the problem, it's because I saw how good they could be sure. with us in 2009 and 2010, when, as long as they were operating with us, integrated with us. Um, and so I believed, I was very optimistic actually, at the end of 2010, that this was actually going to work. As I look back now, I realized that I was wrong. Wow. So here's another quote, and, and uh, I'll just take it, you know, in order as it came in the article as well, which I think is um, so relevant to this discussion, quoting, multiple presidential administrations bear responsibility for this ultimate failure. In Afghanistan, every administration, beginning with the Bush administration, has failed in the development of an effective regional strategy. Was, what is it more also been a, more of a big picture question? Um, not only, as you said, not only militarily, yeah, the um, uh, well, first let me say I am disgusted by, uh, but not surprised that you see political figures on both sides blaming other administrations. I mean, uh, there's so nothing good, nothing good comes out of that. Unfortunately, it's not a surprise, but mm -hmm. uh, some of the things I've seen by even by members of Congress as well as uh, uh, advocates for one side or the other blaming. Uh, one administration and and the the issues that led to our uh, eventual uh, having to withdraw and it was not just the United States of course we had many allies with us um, of course span uh, almost 20 years of U.S. administrations so that's mm -hmm. I, I wanted to, to say that up front um, from a, the other thing is that Afghanistan, of course, is, is not an island sitting out in the middle of the ocean somewhere. It is part mm -hmm. of the region. In fact, it, it is landlocked. So it has Iran on one Indeed. side, Pakistan on the other side. It even shares a tiny bit of border with China and Tajikistan. Yes. And uh, so you, you can't have a strategy for Afghanistan without putting it in the context of the broader region. Um, as long as Pakistan was willing to give safe haven to Al-Qaeda and to the right. Taliban, um, then never in a thousand years were we going to defeat them. There, there is no example in history of a major mm -hmm. insurgency being defeated as long as it had uh, this kind of safe haven across a border. 
Um, again, I think I was part of the problem because I worked for one year in 2011 as a director of the Pakistan-Afghanistan coordination cell on the joint staff, where we were responsible for helping coordinate policy between the White House, the Department of Defense, and the troops in the field. And uh, I really did believe that Pakistan was an ally, uh, but I had deluded myself. And I think for years we had suppressed or ignored advice from experts who knew Pakistan and who knew that Pakistan was not actually an ally and that the um, ISI, which is the Pakistani uh, Intelligence Service, saw the Taliban actually as an arm for them. Uh, because you can't, you can't think about Afghanistan without taking into account Pakistan, and you can't deal with Pakistan without taking into account India. And of course, Pakistan has no interest in a stable Afghanistan on its western border that is friendly to India. Um, so we've spent billions of dollars with great diplomats and hardworking uh, military personnel in Pakistan trying to um, trying to help them be successful as an ally. And it, when Osama bin Laden was killed living in a big house down the street from the military academy of Pakistan, I mean, that I think at that point, even the most diehard advocate of Pakistan realized this, this can't work. So that's, that's what I mean, that uh, we never did develop a strategy. And look, if it was easy, it would have been done. <laughs> can imagine. <laughs> Pakistan has lots of nuclear weapons. And so good people were concerned that these nuclear weapons would fall into the hands of extremists um, or sure. those who would use them obviously in a way that was not helpful. So um, it's not an easy thing, but the fact is uh, we deluded ourselves for too long. And, and as long as that was the case, then we were never going to be ultimately successful uh, in Afghanistan. All right, I'll take the third quote because I think you're you're leading me right down the path with my my quotes, uh, and I quote you again, Ben, like the Prussians who had to be crushed by the French at Jena Auerstadt in order to force the necessary reforms to their once successful model, so that they could become the dominant power in continental Europe for most of the 19th century. We are going to have to learn from this failure and address our own institutional and political problems. You sort of touched on it. So I was, I was with some uh, German officers on a tour of the battlefield at uh, Vienna and Auerstadt, the twin battles there, where uh, one mm -hmm. of Napoleon's most crushing uh, victories over Prussian forces. I mean, it was an obliteration of the Prussians who were still tied to the model that they had used under Frederick the Great, you know, decades. Previously, they had never adapted. And obviously, under Napoleon, the French um, army was far superior and, and more modern in terms of operational employment and capabilities. So it took that crushing victory for the Prussians to look at what they had. And so this is where uh, uh, Scharnhorst and Clausewitz, who were younger officers at the time, realized, okay, this we have got to make some radical changes, which of course they did. So as I look at us, the United States, but also our, our allies, there are three or four things that um, we have got to address. 
uh, first of all, uh, we have got to make sure in our military, but also in our State Department and in other government institutions, that we cultivate, uh, encourage, in fact, require uh, that dissenting or negative assessments that are contrary to the prevailing narrative are listened to, that they're considered, no matter how painful or uh, uncomfortable they are. The narrative in Afghanistan was that if we can just get Afghan security forces to stand on their feet, we'll be able to leave. They can defend it themselves, and then that's our exit strategy. And so reports, and, and by the way, I'm not questioning anybody's integrity here, okay? but the, the reports about corruption uh, in the uh, highest levels of the Afghan government uh, were well known. I mean, these were out there. Uh, the uh, reports about the unreliability of Pakistan as an ally. This was this was known. Um, and then the uh, within the Afghan military, despite the incredible courage and effectiveness of some units, by and large, there was so much um, corrosion of trust by soldiers and their leadership. You know, they weren't getting fed, they weren't getting paid, um, and they weren't being helped. This was all known. But those kind of narratives, those kind of assessments were contrary to the prevailing narrative of multiple administrations. And I think that's something that we have got to address as part of a overall assessment. And this is why um, you have to have officers in all of our military services that are trained to think critically, to, to read a wide range of things, not just army doctrine, but have a broad education so that we can understand these kinds of things. You know, one of the quotes from Clausewitz that I like the most, he talks about the first ultimate responsibility of the diplomat and the general is to understand the nature of the war before we embark on it. That, that takes critical thinking and, and broad education. So that's, that's number one. Um, number two, you know, I think about the equipment that we had uh, going into Afghanistan and to Iraq back in the mm -hmm. ending of all this. And I look at what we have now. What a dramatic uh, improvement overall in capabilities. But that didn't happen because of normal Department of Defense processes. It took um, hundreds of people being killed or terribly wounded for us to change our whole thinking about armored vehicles, for example. Mm -hmm. um, and, and other capabilities forced us to uh, uh, improve how we operate with special forces and conventional forces. Um, that's a, uh, we shouldn't have to lose thousands of people to, no. to, to get to this. So I think that's, that's part of it. Just two more things. Uh, number sure. three, we are totally reliant on allies. Mm -hmm. The United States with the biggest defense budget in history does mm -hmm. not have the capability to do everything we need to do anywhere alone. And um, we did not, uh, I would say this, we, there were thousands of very competent professional uh, officers and soldiers from so many different nations, not just NATO nations, but others as well, that were right. part of this effort. But at the end of the day, uh, I think those allies were often taken for granted we're told what to do versus being consulted. And that really came out here in this withdrawal where uh, allies at, at top, top levels were caught by surprise 
by the rapidity with which the United States pulled out. And I think um, we are going to have to work very hard to make sure that our reputation as a reliable ally um, is uh, fixed, is untarnished, that the Russians and the Chinese are already pointing to that saying, look, hey, you guys, you thought you were safe with the United States. Look what happened to <laughs> Afghanistan. Mm. <laughs> All right. Well, that's a, that I was just going to say, you know, uh, there's a lot of, you know, uh, talk, you know, this media buzz and flurry of all kinds of uh, commentary and, and about, you know, this this dramatic uh, pullout that, of course, was decided um, before. And um, it, it's very interesting to hear your perspective um, uh, on that. And I appreciate so much uh, your analysis and your commentary. Uh, we will finish here this first segment um, and we will go on to the, to the second segment. Thank you, Ben. Thank you, Will. Okay. So welcome back to segment two with Lieutenant General Retired Ben Hodges. Ben, welcome back. Thank you, Em. All right, so in this second segment, we agreed to talk about who will fill the void after August 31st. And there's a large number of regional players and then, of course, great powers. And uh, I'd like to start with a quote, if I may, from your article in the New York Post that we quoted earlier in the first segment. The second step is to reassess our strategy for the region. We must look at this as a regional security issue, not just an Afghan issue. The Chinese will surely move in quickly with lots of money and zero concerns for human rights and women's safety in order to gain access to the vast amounts of precious minerals waiting to be extracted from the mountains of Afghanistan. I must say, Ben, I've seen numerous articles uh, that have emerged also about Afghanistan's wealth. If we could also touch on that, maybe. And, maybe give some regional or geographic perspective or historical perspective, please. So, um, you know, strategy is about interests and geography. It, it can't right. be based on emotion. Certainly values uh, are part of this, but it can't be driven by emotion. And I think that um, the United States and our allies um, need to think about how do we ensure that this vacuum that is now there with the fall of the government of Afghanistan, the withdrawal of forces from the United States, UK, Germany, Fran uh, and our other allies, uh, as well as frankly, many of the diplomats. Um, how do we make sure that Afghanistan does not once again become a place from which um, Islamic extremists such as the ISIS-K uh, branch uh, that has emerged uh, so that they cannot launch attacks against our allies in Europe uh, or uh, against the United States and Canada. So that, that strategic requirement still exists. Um, now, strategy, of course, is not just military. There, uh, you have to have a diplomatic element, you have to have a, an information element, and you have to have an economic element as well as military. And frankly, everybody in the military that I know always prefers 
that in this uh, construct I just laid out, that the D for diplomacy is the capital letter, that it's that diplomacy leads and that in the military backs up the diplomatic effort in ways that are that are needed. And I think President Biden uh, addressed that yesterday in his remarks, explaining, you know, U.S. policy and the decisions that were made and, and really kind of uh, describing that this is the way the United States intends in the future to uh, to help uh, protect ourselves and our interests is through increased diplomatic, economic and economic effort, not leading with the military. And I completely support that. Now, um, you know, for a long time, I've been hearing about Afghanistan as a graveyard of empires. I mean, from Alexander the Great, uh, the British, of course, the, the Soviet Union. <clears throat> and so plenty of uh, geniuses have said, why didn't you guys uh, read the books? Mm -hmm. you, you were never going to be successful there. Um, I, I don't accept that. For sure, the, the challenges are huge, um, depending on what the objective is. What, what, what is the objective? And, and I would contend that, uh, as we saw in the first year and a half, we just about accomplished what we wanted, which was to destroy the Taliban and Al-Qaeda, get them out of there. And then we should have left and we would have been successful. I was going to say, should, should we have left at that point? That should have been it. Now, you can be Mission sure. Mission was accomplished. You, you can be sure that um, that would not have been elegant. And there would have been lots of people saying, oh, my God, the United States came in here, broke all the glass, and then you just walked away. Um, that's why the solution was never going to be just a military solution. But it is the duty of our civilian leaders to lay out the strategic objective to, to identify what risk they're willing to take. And then, frankly, they have to sell it to the Congress. Uh, and right. they have to bring allies along. And then our allied leaders have to do the same thing with their own parla parliaments or the Bundestag or the uh, National Assembly. So uh, it, you're not doomed to failure unless you don't stick to the objective and you don't apply the right mix of diplomatic and economic and military resources. Um, I think we, we could have been successful. We were right there. Um, but uh, we, we, we fail, ultimately failed for the reasons we've been talking about. Now, if I may, um, in, within the context of discussing strategy, of course, um, the United States, we, we've been blessed by history and our geography, right. having oceans on both sides and, and friendly nations like Canada and Mexico on our northern and southern border. So we have a different mindset and a, and a geographic advantage than say almost any country in Europe um, in, in the Middle East. But because of this, uh, we require and depend on overseas bases. Um, it, I mean, the whole world has watched thousands of Afghan refugees flying right. into Rabstein Air Force Base, for example, uh, mm -hmm. here in Germany. Um, the, the bases that we have in Spain, in Italy, in the UK, in Germany, in Greece, and in Turkey, they are there in part as our contribution towards NATO and security in Europe, but also to enable our own uh, power projection and to protect our strategic interests. Similarly, we have bases in, uh, in the Middle East. All of these are essential. Um, if we're going to protect our interests, if we're going to conduct counterterrorism, if we're going to support our allies, 
thank goodness that the previous administration was not successful in trying to pull out of bases in Germany, for example. Where would we be without Einstein? Um, how many hundreds of soldiers and Marines are alive because they got treatment at Landstuhl Hospital after sure. being evacuated uh, from theater and then on the way back to the States had to go into Landstuhl for life-saving treatment before they could move further forward. This is a part of strategy as well. And fortunately, the Congress has continued to support these things, but it, we cannot take it for granted, nor can we take for granted that our allies will always give us this kind of access. I was going to say, could we talk a little bit about the allies and, and the, the reactions from some allies? And of course, there was this NATO summit uh, in June that, that we both did a podcast on recently. Um, how have you been seeing the reaction from the allies? And of course, again, the discussions about, you know, is the United States reliable? Is the United States, you know, evacuating the world stage? Uh, who is going to be this next world power that can replace? I mean, you know, the people are already replacing, you know, are obviously in articles <laughs> in the press and otherwhere. I'm sure you've seen the discussions and I've, you know, as you know, I watch many different uh, types of broadcasts in different countries to get perspective. Can, can you give us a little, little bit of insight on that, please? Yeah, first, I, I don't know anybody that really reads and watches and studies more than you, Ellen. Uh, the, the, <laughs> yeah, yeah, there's a reason you have followers on four continents and 38 countries, because you, you understand what they're doing. And well, yeah, I have to. I think it's it's my duty. <laughs> so it is. It Thank is. you. So um, two or three things. First of all, for the professionals in our professional leaders in military and foreign ministries and heads of state of our allies, they know at the end of the day, the United States is going to be there. It, it's not always going to be pretty. Uh, they're going to be irritated with us. Uh, they worry about uh, U.S. domestic politics and can there be a return of the Trump administration, for example, or somebody like that. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, they know that the United States, despite all of our issues and challenges and, and, and flaws, we are the country that is always going to be there, whether it's a disaster, uh, a, a natural disaster or a catastrophe of some sort. And uh, when you look at the amount of money that the United States invests in helping allies defend themselves, uh, when you have thousands of troops that live abroad, uh, our great Navy and Air Force, as well as soldiers and Marines, um, and the economic investment tools that the United States has, they all know that the United States is going to be there. Now, so America is back then, Ben? Well, I, I would say it never left. Um, <laughs> Good. The, the previous administration absolutely caused damage to people's confidence in the United States sure. as the leader of NATO. When the, pre when the former president said, oh, I'm not sure that if, um, you know, those people in Montenegro, they're crazy. If they started a war, why would we? I mean, it was a ridiculous um, sort of, uh, uh, hypothetical yeah. situation put to him by a Fox uh, uh, interviewer, Tucker Carlson, mm -hmm. and the president, uh, you know, says, I don't think we might do that. Never in my life did I imagine that um, an American president would question Article 5. That was damaging. So I was sure. encouraged when President Biden uh, made it clear from day one on his inauguration that the importance of allies I think he removed all doubt about America's commitment to the alliance. Our Congress 
which is very important. Article one, section eight, you know, the Congress yes. has uh, important roles with regards to the military. They have always supported um, U.S. Uh, leadership in NATO and understands the importance of our investment and presence in Europe. Uh, you remember the huge ovation that Secretary Joe Stoltenberg got when he spoke in front of the uh, the uh, joint session of Congress. Yes. And, uh, and this was during the Trump administration. So I think most people understand that. What, uh, what they get frustrated with is when there is not actual consultation and we make decisions to have huge impacts sure. on them. Now, one, one final thing is uh, you, met, you asked about the Taliban. Um, yes. You know, we're, we're going to have to deal as part of the strategy, um, as distasteful and bizarre as it may seem right now, if that in fact is going to be who governs Afghanistan, um, for the strategic reasons we've already talked about, we're going to have to deal with whoever the government is. I mean, my goodness, we deal with the Chinese Communist Party in China. We deal with the Kremlin. Um, so, I mean, this is um, if. So, are we going to recognize? We're going to recognize the Taliban. This is this this question out there. You know, are, that, are we going to a, recognize? And that is a great question. Um, I think I, I can see it getting to that. I mean, think about it. Right now, Vietnam is one of our most important partners in the Indo-Pacific region. Um, even after a 10-year war that cost over 50,000 lives and zillions of dollars, now um, our vice president was just there trying to yes. help bolster their ability to resist the Chinese Communist Party. Uh, you know, we, we immediately went to work in Germany after the end of the Second World War to help rebuild West Germany as part of the Marshall Plan uh, yes. because it was in our own interest as really? well as morally the right thing to do. And then, of course, uh, uh, I would expect that this is what, we'll, and we did it in Japan, uh, and this is what I expect yes. we'll end up doing somehow in Afghanistan, although I'm, I'm reluctant to predict. The Afghans, I was listening to a CNN news report last night, and the, the uh, uh, journalist said, okay, the Taliban are in complete control of Afghanistan. Well, that's not true. They're not in complete control. Uh, there are thousands of ISIS K uh, fighters there, and uh, the Taliban are, are going to have to win control of Afghanistan against extremists who have no interest in, in uh, the Taliban being in charge there. Of course, all of this, you know, political maneuvering and uh, maybe there'll be elections. And, and of course, you know, as I do, uh, Hamid Karzai, former President Hamid Karzai, has stayed in the country, as has Dr. Abdullah Abdullah, whereas uh, former President uh, Ashraf Ghani has left the country. Um, are we talking, too, about maybe more power sharing with different groups? And I know there's um, a desire, and from what I'm hearing now, that this government Taliban will lead, uh, will become, you know, be multilateral, multicultural, multi-ethnic with women. I mean, we're hearing all kinds of things. Is this uh, something, do you think, that the, the American government can 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 uh, agree with um, and and then you know how how do we support? I understand that some of their their funds are have been frozen uh, by the World Bank. Uh, could you talk to that a little bit as well? Are you talking about the economic piece? Yeah, well, certainly the United States and other uh, countries have financial tools that can uh, help shape what happens in Afghanistan, whether it's uh, releasing or unfreezing uh, Afghan assets or other types of, of aid. 
Um, I thought it was important. And uh, I listened to General McKenzie the other night when he announced that the last soldier, General Donahue, the commander of the 82nd Airborne Division, that iconic picture of him getting on the ramp, that that was yes. it. Um, I thought it was interesting that General McKenzie said that they had left intact all the stuff necessary to run the uh, airport there in Kabul for commercial purposes. Of course, the military equipment that was left behind was demilitarized or disabled, but the stuff necessary to run the airport was left intact. I think this is a, a, a brilliant move, uh, and it indicates a recognition by the United States and our allies that Afghanistan is a country, and uh, we're going to have to deal with whoever there is that is uh, ultimately in charge of the country. Um, I, I would ex I would expect that the United States and the international community will have high expectations for, or there will be a lot of pressure, not maybe not high expectations, but there will be pressure that um, some of the progress that has been made for women and in education, for example, uh, will not be snuffed out. Now, I'm not naive, and uh, the, the Taliban have not given me any indication, or I haven't seen much evidence that you know, it's a whole new world and that these are the friendly Taliban. Um, yeah, that they've changed, basically. Yeah. That's a big question, right? But I will say, I think it is mm. 20 years later, and they know that they're going to need some sort of international recognition and uh, legitimacy if they're, in fact, going to um, maintain control of their country. So I, I think I see a sliver of light, um, but it's... I think the United States will work closely with regional allies here. I mean, you mentioned Qatar. I, I think other countries, Turkey, for example. Yes. I think these countries can have a lot of positive influence. Um, and this is why, again, the United States, our relationship with Turkey, which is crap right now, is a NATO ally. We, we, yes. we need Turkey uh, sure we in so many different ways in the Black Sea region, as well as in the Middle East. This, this, when the president says we're going to leave with diplomacy, this is what it means. Yeah, I think I think that's a big piece of it. Uh, is is soft and hard power. Uh, obviously, only soft power will not work, uh, and it needs to be backed up by hard power. Right. Um, let Let's finish uh, this segment here. Thank you again, uh, Ben, and we'll move on to segment three about the threats and is democracy a mirage? Great. And we're back for the final segment of Mediterranean Sustainability Partners, which uh, I'm so pleased to have uh, Ben Hodges, Lieutenant General, retired Ben Hodges with me again for this final segment. Ben, uh, thank you so much for, for sticking with me for the third segment. Uh, I love doing it. Oh, thank you so much. And again, you know, we're heard in 38 countries and four continents, and I'm so pleased that, that we can uh, give our audience such wonderful interviews uh, as we have uh, for, with you today. Thank you so much. 
Okay, uh, so we're going to move on to segment three. And uh, what are the threats, or is democracy a mirage in this wild, wild west of many different uh, threats and menaces? I'm going back to your article once again, Ben, in the New York Post, and I'm quoting The immediate priority is to get everybody out who needs or wants to get out. This is already a humanitarian disaster, and it will get worse if the US, our allies, and the United Nations can't prevent it. The scenes we are all seeing coming out of Afghanistan now are tragic, chaotic, frustrating, and sad. But what many may not see are the incredible efforts by soldiers and Marines on the ground, and the amazing skill and courage of airmen flying in and out of Kabul's crowded airport, even less visible and appreciated around-the-clock work by commanders and staff from the Pentagon and U.S. Central Command. If you enlighten us in, in, in this operation, I mean, a tremendous um, airlift. I think they said it was one of the biggest uh, airlift evacuations in, in, in history, no? Yeah, it, it, it was uh, the biggest in history. Um, I've spoken with uh, several different officials from different countries about this here over the last few days. Um, the, what what these air aircraft were doing is amazing. Every single one of them, of course, took off uh, overloaded. I mean, an airplane. I that saw the pictures. Carry, yeah, I mean, you're talking about hundreds of people extra above what they're supposed to carry. Um, so th this is real courage. This is not just a, a pilot flaunting regulation. This is courage and decisions that were made at high levels to do this in order to get as many people out as possible. Now think yes. about it, you know, these airplanes are not fl flying in and out of Charles de Gaulle or Dulles or um, uh, Atlanta Hartsfield Airport. They're flying in and out of, a, of, an, air, of an international airport uh, outside of Kabul where you've got terrorists in the area that would love to have been able to shoot down a plane. Um, the uh, runway facilities, all of the stuff necessary for normal flight was not uh, in operation, and, and so it was military uh, with like air traffic controllers uh, sitting with radios on the ground talking to aircraft. So th you're talking were about- there, Were there also, sorry, were there also anti-missile anti aircraft, um, you yeah, know, you missiles could, to- Yeah, the, the good point. The Central Command, I think, did a very good job of providing uh, round-the-clock, 24-7 combat air patrols overhead. Um, okay. As we know about drone strikes that hit uh, a suicide uh, bomber car uh, to prevent yes. that strike. And so these kind of things were up there to protect the outer perimeter. While you've got, I mean, think about the air traffic control challenge of this. And you can't imagine <laughs> German airplanes, French airplanes, British airplanes, uh, others, as well as U.S. Air Force flying in and out. Um, so I, I was just so impressed with with what they did. Um, and then, and by the way, you've got to put fuel in airplanes, you've got to do maintenance. Um, I spoke to a senior German officer the other day and he talked about uh, uh, how proud they were that what they were able to do, they had only one aircraft that had um, a maintenance issue and that was one that landed and uh, most of the tires on it were blown out because of the debris oh, that was on the runway left over oh, from right. the previous days you know, when, the, when all the people had rushed onto the airfield. Yes. Oh, and what so, a security issue, right? I mean. Yeah. So mm -hmm. I, I think that's important. The other part, um, I mentioned Central Command. Mm -hmm. like, like thousands of other people, I was being asked, hey, can you help find this particular family? I mean, I was asked by people from different countries 
um, to help find Afghans who had maybe supported media organizations, for example, or maybe right. it was a girl's school or, and so, mm -hmm. um, of course I'm retired, um, but I did reach <laughs> out to somebody who worked at Central Command and said, hey, so what's the process? How do we find? And I was so impressed with the calm, firm uh, resolve that these women and men on these staffs demonstrated and they were building lists and they said sir if you just give us a name and if there's a phone number for this person we will wow. try and find them Wonderful. and I was, I was blown away with um how quick and how responsive they were uh to me and so many others for that so that's the kind of thing that'll never be seen in the paper but which i witnessed sure. and uh, uh, You're fortunate. I, was, I was impressed with that fortunate to be on the backside so 39 every 39 minutes a plane was taking off from what i understand is that correct and then you know everybody got out and now there's these remaining people and i don't know if you saw uh, joe biden's of course you saw joe, joe biden's speech yesterday did you see the press conference following um you know one of the journalists kept pounding uh jan Pisecki at, at you know in the press room saying well are you going to get those people out? Uh, have you heard anything about those that are left behind? Well, first of all, uh, obviously there's uh, going to be efforts, strong efforts, I think, by uh, the U.S. Department of State, as well as um, uh, other countries to try and and continue help people get out that want to. Uh, but it's, it's not going to, it'll be a, it'll take on a different form than what we see now. Uh, and, and for sure, I, I thought General McKenzie was clear, um, the president, uh, others, uh, General Carter, the chief of defense from the UK, talk about, hey, it's, it's, not, it's not possible um, at this point to get everybody out that wanted to get out. And the Taliban, of course, um, from, uh, they, they saw what happened. They, they see the brain drain. I mean, the people that are leaving are the ones that have language skills, that have technical skills, that are teachers. Um, That's a catastrophe for, for Afghanistan, really, yes. when you think about it, right? Right. And so uh, it's not just retribution that they're keeping people there. It's also um, to, to stop the brain drain. So I, I think um, we're going to see continued diplomatic efforts. Uh, honestly, I think that everything was given where, that we are where we are. Everything was done that could have been done. Now, you right. could say, uh, people have asked, why didn't we start doing this sooner? I mean, ah, that was the question yesterday in the press room. Yeah. yeah. Why didn't we do this sooner? Well, actually, um, I think many people uh, resisted or didn't want to leave because they weren't sure it was going to collapse like this, uh, right. or they had, you know, extensive extended family members and they didn't want to leave while they still had family there. Sure. And you've got a lot of really brave, courageous women and men who work for non-governmental organizations that are there that are committed to helping Afghan civil society. And they didn't want to just they completely they didn't want to walk away from it. So mm -hmm. it wasn't. I, I have to say, I'm really uh, disgusted by certain comments I see from people saying we abandoned all these people. Uh, I think that's a disservice to the efforts that were taken by so many countries. Sure. Um, and uh, when you add up the tens of thousands of people that were evacuated after the decision was finally taken, um, I, I think we, we could focus more on that and then continue to work on how do we help the rest of them out. Now, w one area where I do fault the Biden administration um, is in the, uh, the preparation for 
the, the immigration aspect of this thing. I mean, this this is not normal immigration, where people stand in a queue, we're hoping to get a visa and all that. I mean, we knew that at some point this was going to have to happen, and yet um, we are painfully slow on uh, processing people um, out of this particular group. Um, people that um, have worked with us. I, I think that we should have a uh, accelerated, um, ex expedited process for, for this particular uh, group of people. Of course, there's risk involved with that. Of course, you're gonna have um, some, uh, some people that will, that will get in that are not the ones that we want. But again, we, these are not uh, a lot of villagers out of the hills. These are people we have been working with that we should with, have yeah. some sense of who they are and their loyalty and uh, or their reliability. And um, I, I think we were not as prepared, the collective we as prepared for that as we could have been. Um, now at Ramstein Air Force Base and other places like it, they are bursting at the seams uh, with mm -hmm. uh, Afghans who made it, made it out of the country. And now they're sitting in Ramstein so what happens next for them? Um, well, that's, that's the big question. Uh, the uh, Customs and Border Police are there from the U.S. government that are processing people. And um, uh, the, our great Air Force there is uh, doing everything they can to make sure that people have shelter, food, water, and uh, uh, you know, essential health care. Um, sure. But, the and they're government. getting vaccinated, right? I understand that people are they're getting vaccinated when they arrive in some of these centers. There's they, centers. They could be. I, I don't know, but I hadn't even thought of that. That's a that's a great uh, that's a, a great point. That's what I've been seeing. Yeah. yeah. The German government, of course, is is uh, is being uh, part of the solution here. They have, but they've said, okay, you can you can keep them there for up to ten days per person. So that there is a lot of pressure. And then what? Well, yeah, then, and then, then they should be moving on to whatever the determination is to the United States or wherever. And, you know, in the United States, we've offered we've already opened up places like Fort McCoy, Wisconsin and other oh, okay. National Guard facilities, uh, much like we did back in the uh, 70s and 80s when we had the you know boat people came in. Yes. Or, yes. Know, so you have infrastructure where you can at least put people under shelter and, and then yes. go about the, the process. I'm. So this is uh, uh, a lot of work that's being done now in Europe. I was gonna say, I've got a quote that I wanna do that is exactly okay. what I'm okay. coming to. So you wrote, uh, this is going to launch another refugee problem to Europe, which will be destabilizing and that can have negative consequences for the US. The American economy depends in large part on a stable, prosperous Europe the European Union is our largest trading partner. So true. So, uh, and I've been seeing reports, you know, and I'm, I'm, in, I'm in Paris. So, um, you know, there was even, uh, you know, a, a Taliban or somebody, a terrorist that got in through the, you know, the people that came through and landed at Charles de Gaulle Airport. Um, and, and then this whole big fear, uh, Ben, uh, I did a report for the French defense minister back in 2015 with my think tank. And, you know, we were asked to give different scenarios for, you know, migration flows that were coming, you know, from five sides, if you will, from the south, from the, from, from the mm -hmm. east, et cetera, land and sea. Um, and, and so the Europeans, especially the French, are very wary, although very welcoming, I must say, to, to the Afghan refugees. Uh, you, you wanted to say, you know, and then what happens in Europe? Because you're also in Germany. 
Well, uh, I certainly understand and respect why uh, any nation is worried about a large influx of refugees, regardless of the reason, uh, in, into their, their country. It, it, clearly, this I'm from the state of Florida, and uh, there was always concern about impact on healthcare systems, on education systems, um, when you have a large number of undocumented or even documented people coming in that are not yet taxpayers. So uh, there's there's a reason this is always a sensitive uh, political issue as well as a societal issue. Having said that, um, as we saw back in 2015, when you had the huge number of refugees that came out of uh, primarily Syria, but not only Syria. Yes, Iraq and, and Afghanistan at that time. Those are the three greatest right. flows um, into Europe. And of course, our friends in Spain, uh, France and Italy and Greece uh, are daily dealing with large numbers of refugees coming across the Mediterranean from North Africa. Um, mm -hmm. This, this matters because if, it, if this destabilizes governments in Europe and that affects the economies of Europe, then yes. that has an effect on the United States. So the, the point of, that I was trying to make, not so articulately, was that um, this is not just a U.S. problem or it's not like, hey, Europe, that's your problem, handle some refugees. Our economies, our lives are so interconnected and, and that's why, you know, I get frustrated when we don't do a good job of uh, coordinating with allies on big decisions that can have downstream effects uh, that uh, impact all of us. There is there's a part too that we we should learn at least from from the Syrian war and crisis and outflow of refugees to Europe that uh, now it's being said and you know even in our conclusions we said the refugees should be kept as close as they can to their home country so they can go back. Now, of course, there's many arguments against that, saying they can't go back. Maybe their property was confiscated or destroyed. Or um, so um, th this is a, a, a regional issue. Um, and, and I don't know if you've heard anything, Ben, about um, maybe these refugees being placed closer to home, like in, in the surrounding countries, like which wasn't the case for Syria. Well, I don't know about the capacity um, for countries to take them. You know, Jordan, for example, is overwhelmed oh, yes. uh, with refugees. Turkey has millions of refugees yes. in and on its border. And uh, yes. of course, this is a constant friction point between Turkey and Greece. So uh, I don't know what the capacity is uh, in those in countries around uh, there. Interestingly, yesterday I um, spoke to a German uh, TV crew. The cameraman mm -hmm. was an Afghan that basically had lived in Iran most of his life. They had left no, Afghanistan no. years ago, and and so he grew up in Iran. Um, so there are uh, Afghan diaspora in, yes. in neighboring countries as, as well. Now, one other thing that um, I had not anticipated, but I should have, is the use of refugees as a weapon by Belarus. Um, you, you see yes, this you saw that awful situation where Belarus um, is is pushed out refugees or is is actually bringing in refugees from refugees uh, and then from Baghdad, and then exactly. they escort them to the border with Latvia, Lithuania, and Poland. I saw that. And so um, this this is a this is another tool in the Kremlin's uh, hybrid toolbox to create friction to uh, to try sure. and stabilization. Uh, yes, that's what it's all about. Sure. Now I have one last quote as we finish this last segment, dear Ben. 
uh, and I'm quoting again, our failure in Afghanistan, along with our allies, will embolden our enemies and threats around the world. Afghanistan is once again a possible training ground or base for terrorist attacks against Europe and the United States, the reason we went there after 9-11. Um, closing remarks, maybe, and a, and, and a comment on your, your quote? Uh, I'll say this. Nobody is more resilient than the United States. Uh, we we will uh, we'll eventually get this right. Uh, we, I think the uh, the emphasis that the president has laid out in terms of uh, getting our diplomacy right uh, and and leading with diplomacy, but also that doesn't mean there's no military, but getting the right sort of the blend correct. Balance, and again, yeah. the civilian leadership has got to. Uh, um, lay out what the objectives are and make it very clear to the average American voter and uh, with our allies what our interests are and then live up to those interests. And and I think we'll eventually get this right. But I tell you what, we, we have got to we have got to make sure our own house is in order. Um, American diplomacy, American strategic uh, uh, policy is only effective if the, the institutions that uh, make us the United States of America are strong and healthy. Our electoral process, our judiciary, our, our uh, balance of powers, if you will, uh, between the three branches of the U.S. government. Yes. Uh, we, right now, uh, unfortunately, we're not setting a real good example uh, in some of these areas. And, and, and the Russians and the Chinese are exploiting it every chance they can. Yeah, we, we really had a, a scary moment, didn't we, on January 6th um, and the insurgency into the Capitol. And, you know, of course, everybody looks at, you know, and I have to use this phrase that, you know, President Reagan used of this shining city on the hill. Um, I believe, you know, we still need to work very hard at that to, to keep uh, that image uh, of the United States in our in our hearts and to, you know, rayon uh, out and, and, and shine in, in the world. Now, there's a reason millions of people risk their life every year trying to get to the United States. Um, and we've we've just got to, uh, uh, this is a time for positive leadership and uh, not turning our back. I agree. Thank you so much, Lieutenant General Ben Hodges, for your time today. It was a wonderful session as always. And uh, I, I look forward to interviewing you once again. And um, thank you, Ben. Well, I appreciate your high threshold of pain if, uh, to, to give me this much time to talk. Thank you, Ellen. <laughs> Thank you, Ben. I appreciate it. <laughs>